0: Hey, welcome to Access. John here. I felt convicted to issue out a message to all who are listening to these podcasts from home uh, that if you're not a part of Rungi First Baptist Church, that I am not your pastor and that these messages are designed to be a supplement to your daily walk with God, not a substitution for the church. I strongly encourage you to stay in fellowship with other believers through the local church, and if you're a part of Rungi FPC, then we can't wait to see you when you return. If you're ready to begin today's study, then turn to John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, because this message is entitled, God Work. Have you ever seen a God work? You might might be wondering, well, how's that different from God working? Well, a God work is something that happens, and the only explanation is that God must have done it. Um, When God does something on a large scale, obviously that's a full-blown miracle. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, he's still in the business of doing miracles today. You might not believe that, but it's true. What I'm referring to is something a little more subtle than a full-blown miracle. I'm talking about the things that God does, that if you're not paying attention, you might just miss it. The God works that I'm referring to are the subtle ways that God shows us that not only is he paying attention to us, but that he cares for us. And there is a God work that is of particularly special interest to me. I've kept evidence of it for 14 years. And if you've ever heard my testimony, you know that right after I gave my life to Christ, I experienced one of the most difficult trials of my Christian life. When I got off drugs and gave my life to Christ, I actually made a pact with one of my best friends, Becky, who agreed to do the same. And four days after we made this pact together... ...she died on a, in, a, in a head-on collision. And to the best of my knowledge... ...she kept her promise. And so for the last 14 years... ...I have two. But words cannot describe the grief... ...that I experienced when she died. I question why God would allow this to happen... ...when we would just given our lives to Him... ...and this is how we repay, He repays us? I mean, what are you doing, God? And if it weren't enough to know... ...that I was alive and that she was dead the wrecker service that towed the mangled vehicle they put it right outside my bedroom window to serve as a reminder Uh, I don't think they did this on purpose but I know that Satan tried to use this to destroy me that I looked out my window and there it was see she was killed driving my car and they dropped it outside my bedroom window at my parents house now needless to say a relapse into an escape through drugs it crossed my mind and yet, God gave me exactly what I needed when I needed it most to help me move forward in my faith without her. The days that passed after the accident, I can tell you they were just a blur. I, don't, I, don't, I can't tell you what day what happened, but I know a lot happened. We had to meet with the funeral uh, arrangements and in, in the hospital and, and just getting everything in order and the pastor, and it was just it was a mess. But I remember the morning before the funeral. I went in to shower in my, my parents' bathroom, And I remember going into that shower, and I was just full of confusion and hurt. And I was so angry. And let's just say that while I showered, all that emotion came out. That I was a sobbing mess. But when I left that shower, I remember feeling numb from being mentally and emotionally drained. And as I stepped out of the shower door, I looked to my left, and I found a devotional booklet that had a woman printed on the cover And it looked exactly like Becky. I'm going to put a picture in the notes section of this message, and so you can look at it if if you want. But if not, it's it's a picture of a woman with angel's wings, which, by the way, is terrible theology to think that we get angel's wings when we get to heaven. We will judge the angels, Scripture tells us. But this woman, she's wearing a yellow robe, which is Becky's favorite color, was... And um, she was eating a watermelon, which was Becky's favorite snack. And, you know, many people would consider this to be a coincidence or that it was intentionally left there by one of my parents, which they both denied, did not really know anything about. Or they might accuse me of being really superstitious, which I know this sounds strange. But I know better. I don't believe in coincidences or superstition. I believe everything happens for a reason. I don't believe in coincidence. I do, however, believe in God-incidences. See, these are opportunities that God shows us that He's in control, that He loves us, and that He cares about us. And this particular God-incidence, or God-work, if you will, reassured me that not only was Becky safe in God's arms, and that I would see her again one day, but God was showing me that He knows exactly what He's doing. I wouldn't necessarily consider this a full-blown miracle, but... I certainly believe that God did this, and I believe he did it just for me, because he cares for me. God knew my faith was so fragile that I would need a little divine support, and I believe that God takes pleasure in doing the things that the world would consider a coincidence. He often works in such a way that if we're not paying attention, we just might miss it. And the sad truth is as the world often does. Well, today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that i believe speaks to the subtle ways that god often works it's necessary for us to study this because we don't want to miss what god is doing we don't want to miss what god's doing around us we don't want to miss what god's doing in us and we certainly don't want to miss what god is doing through us so if we haven't turned our hearts and attention towards him we just might miss those things so i just want to study this passage and talk about the ways that God works. So let's turn our Bibles uh, to and read from John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This is what it says. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it might be more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word of which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather him and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples let's pray god as we study your word we ask that your word would study us father that the holy spirit might begin to show us things that are not of you that you might prune us that you might discipline us to be in accordance with your will that we might bear close resemblance to Jesus, that the things that we do are an expression of your love through us. I pray, God, that you might give us spiritual sight so that not only we can understand this text, but, God, that we might see you working all around us. We thank you for the blessing of calling ourselves your children, and we ask, God, for you to work in us right now. And all these things we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Several times in the book of John, we've read about how Jesus made I am statements. We talked about how these statements not only signified that he was the Messiah and that he was the provision for sin, but that he is God. Uh, Moses asked God, whom shall I say is sending me? And and God replied to him, tell Pharaoh this, I am that I am. So every time Jesus said, I am something, he's talking about how he is God. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the sheep gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here we see a final I am statement found in John, but this one comes with a distinction of roles between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Before I really dive into this, to the weight of this statement, I just want to address the way a lot of well-meaning Christians have interpreted this passage incorrectly. You see, many people promote this passage to support their belief that a person can lose their salvation. For if you're in Christ and you're bearing fruit, and then you stop bearing fruit, you will be cut off and thrown into the fire. However, I believe these statements are made out of ignorance of the culture in which this text was originally written, and, and that we typically Americanize Scripture when, when we're not the original audience that this letter was written to. So when Jesus said that he was the true vine, It would have sent out signals to any learned Jew. The Israelites were an agrarian culture, and they would have understood his use of the vine analogy much better than we ever could. For ancient Israel's staple crop was grapes, and their largest export was wine. Now, because of this, several several times in the Old Testament, many prophets referred to Israel as the vine. There's several scriptures. I'll just read one. Psalms 80 verse 8 says, You removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations... And you planted it. Now what this is saying is that God removed the nation of Israel from Egypt. And then it it created, uh, he established his nation through it. So Israel saw itself as the vine. This concept of being the vine, it held sentimental attachments to the Israelites because wine is a symbol of blessing in scripture. It was their way of saying, we are the ones who are anointed by God. So when Jesus said this in the passage, I am the true vine, it would have not only been understood, it would have been offensive to any Jew listening. Jesus was essentially saying to his disciples, all these years you have been taught that Israel is the vine because it is the only way to God. You've been taught that in order to know God, you must enter into a strict system of obedience and belief known as Judaism. But I tell you, I am the true vine. For I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man may come to the Father except through me. You see, the sound reality is, or was, that the Israelites had been blessed and anointed by God to be his nation. But they rejected the gift of eternal life through Christ and were thereby unfruitful. God was going to stop working through the Israelites. They were not going to bear fruit. Jesus is telling his disciples that because Israel has been unfruitful, they are going to be cut off. Now imagine a dagger to the heart this must have been to a bunch of uneducated Jews. Jesus used this analogy of the vine and the vine dresser to explain to his Jewish disciples that any branch that does not bear fruit is cut off from the inheritance of promise. In uh, every vineyard was a vine dresser, otherwise known as a husbandman. Now, his role was to walk up and down the rows inspecting the vines. And every branch that he found that didn't bear fruit, he would cut it off and he would throw it onto the path where it would later dry up. And someone would later on come and collect it, throw it onto a cart, and haul it off to be burned. The purpose of cutting off the fruitless branches was to keep them from stealing moisture and nutrients from the fruit-bearing branches. The fruitless branches, obviously unbelievers, steal spiritual nourishment from the fruit-bearing branches, the believers. Now, we see a biblical example of this in John chapter 12, verse 42, where where John said, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, talking about Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. So the heavenly father takes on the responsibility of cutting away these fruitless unbelievers. So Jesus said that it was it was the vine dresser's role to not only cut away the fruitless branches but to prune the branches that did not bear fruit so or sorry excuse me uh did bear fruit so that they would be even more fruitful. He needed to prune the branches that did bear fruit so uh, they could be more fruitful Now this can be a very subtle uh, work of God in the life of every believer. However, God works in us to ensure that the condition of our hearts and lives are more pleasing to him. If he sees something in us that he doesn't like, if he sees something in us that isn't like Christ, he takes us through a pruning process, which in truth can be very painful. But we must remember that Jesus said in, in Revelation 3, 19, those whom I love, I discipline, And it kind of reminds me of the old Holly Dunn song, Daddy's Hands. I'm sure you've heard the lyrics read, Daddy's hands were always soft and kind when I was crying. Daddy's hands were hard as steel when I'd done wrong. Daddy's hands weren't always gentle, but I've come to understand there was always love in Daddy's hands. Sometimes God brings his hand down hard on us to discipline us. But we must keep in mind that when he does this, it's because he loves us. Now, I hope you don't mind if I share a personal example of how God has done this with me. One of the bigger ways God has disciplined me is to convict me to remove my online presence from Facebook. Now, you probably don't see a lot of posts from me on Facebook. I do get on occasionally, but uh, that wasn't always the case. I used to be very active. Now, I try to stick to posts uh, about uh, an online Bible study that that I facilitate, or sometimes God will stir up my heart to give a message about him, or I'll post something announcement through the church, but don't get me wrong. Facebook is an incredible tool that has the capability of reconnecting people that, that have been apart and or haven't seen each other for years. It's an incredible resource for announcements and, and even to, to restore relationships with people. However, is that the way it's often used? No. Instead, Facebook is just a platform by which we use to tell our side of the story and and get the last word in and rant about our injustices and brag on ourselves and instigate fights and get sympathy and even pat ourselves on the back. I really wish Mark Zuckerberg would would rename the platform Drama Book or Face Drama or something like that so that so that it would be a little bit more fitting because it's not used in the way that it was originally intended. But I was under the conviction to severely limit my involvement with Facebook because I was putting my ugly heart on display. And it was a painful reminder to me every time I'd read it. Now, I'm telling you uh, an easy way to see the condition of a person's heart is is to read their Facebook posts. It really is. Um, It seemed like every time I got onto Facebook, I was either getting involved in an argument or found something offensive that made me angry or I was patting myself on the back for a job well done. Now I can say that you know you, you can put pictures of your kids up there that should be fine. But I say this as a, as a as a at a risk of a lawsuit from Facebook. I don't really think Jesus if he were here today, he would have a Facebook ap- account. Now what's awesome about Jesus is that he is he is everything I want to be. I don't know, maybe he had a Facebook have a Facebook account. I just I just don't see it. He's everything I want to be though. When Jesus confronted someone, he did it face to face. Jesus didn't feel the need to get the final word in all the time. In fact, when Jesus was accused before the Sanhedrin and lies were brought up against him to condemn him, he stayed silent. He didn't hashtag everything. Talk about emotional security. Jesus didn't need recognition for the good works that he did. He never flaunted his miracles and good works. Not even when he rose from the dead. Now, man, I would blast messages like this all over social media. Ha ha, nice try, guys. And Hashtag you can't stop me and Messiah's life matters. I'd be all over the place. Not only was Jesus emotionally stable, which I think 80% of Facebook posts show emotional instability, I'm just saying. Not only was he confident in who he was, the guy was just classy. I mean, he was always doing good works and he never felt like he had to prove himself to the world. Many times after he would do a miracle, he'd tell people, keep this a secret this is just between you and me don't go tell people now I think he had a reason for doing that but you know Jesus didn't need to flaunt himself flaunt all the good works that he was doing people told him do a miracle and we believe and Jesus would respond you have the law that should be enough now that's just classy he could have if he wanted to but see he's everything that I want to be and everything I'm not and God takes us he's taken me through this pruning process to show me how my heart hasn't lined up with christ and it's because of our human nature that we try to justify ourselves by our good works to show that we're a really good person i mean look at look at all the good i've been doing people jesus told his disciples in verses four and five abide in me and i in you this is this is a command and it's a promise abide in me and i'm gonna abide in you he says, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can, you abide unless you, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, why do you think Jesus said that? Well, I think it's partially because he's not only the way, the truth, and the life, but also because his motives are pure. And much of the time, our motives aren't. In other words, his motives are of God, and much of the time, ours aren't. Most, much of the time, ours are pretty selfish. For example, did you know that Oprah Winfrey is the most charitable celebrity in the world by a huge margin? Every year, she gives away $40 million. Every year, she had a Christmas show where she would literally give away millions of dollars to her audience. You get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. The waiting list to get tickets for her Christmas shows were like 15 years in advance. Why does she do that? Why does she give so much money away from charity? Well, motives are extremely difficult to gauge. Only she and God know the real reason. But it could have something to do with holding on to that title, Most Charitable Celebrity. It could have something to do with the fact that if she could write off $40 million a year to her audience and to charity that she wouldn't have to pay taxes on the remaining amount of her income. I don't know. Could be because she likes being known as a good person. Honestly, I can't tell you. That's between her and God. But what I can tell you is that we somehow know how much money she gives away a year to charity. Do you know how much money Billy Graham gave away last year? Or the last year he was alive? Do you know how much Billy Graham gave away away every single year? Neither do I. We don't know because Billy Graham wasn't a good man. He was a godly man. It's because God got a hold of him. Now, a good work outside of Christ means absolutely nothing. Go ahead. Go do all the works that you want to consider good. Jesus told his disciples that unless they remain in him and abide in him, that it would mean nothing. It doesn't amount to anything because you're not working for what's eternal. You're working for what is temporary. Jesus did incredible things, and he kept it a secret. Which is why he often told his disciples that when they did good work, they must keep it a secret. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter six, verses one through four, let me read this. He says, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them; otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven." So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, so that they might be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you give to the give to the poor do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you will reward you this is more than just being classy it's being in service to the king you see the things that you do don't do it because you want to be a good person do it because god is working in and through you. you don't want man's approval see god's approval it should be enough for me that God knows what I did. I don't have to flaunt it. Now, I often tell people I'm greedy. I want something not from man, from the Lord. I'm greedy. God's blessings are better anyway. Jesus said, "Whoever abides in Him bears much fruit." What is this fruit that He's referring to? Well, I believe that there are three different types: fruit of converts, fruit of righteousness, but most importantly. The fruit of the holy spirit love joy peace patience goodness kindness gentleness faithfulness and self-control these are the works of the holy spirit of god in us and if we're not careful we just might miss them most god works are often missed jesus said that if we the more fruit we bear the more god, god is glorified so wait a second john you just said that God doesn't want to toot his own horn. Jesus doesn't go around flaunting all his miracles, but now you're saying God wants glory for his work? He wants all glory? Well, let me first say that there is a difference between recognition and glory. Recognition is understanding who did something. I, I want to be recognized. Recognize me. Glory is recognition that leads to worship. And see, it's okay to let people know if you did things. Jesus it wasn't Jesus' style. Like I said, he's classy. We might not be. But glory is the recognition that leads to being worshipped. And glory doesn't belong to us because we shouldn't be worshipped. Notice God didn't put a big neon sign on creation and said, Yep, I did that! On the mountain, we don't see an inscription that says, "Uh, Guys, this was me. We don't see on the moon, God was here. Nor do we hear God say, You know, I'm responsible, right? When we look at the beauty of the stars and the galaxies... Paul said that the glory of God is proven through creation, yet people can still argue that creation just happened over millions of years of evolution, that God doesn't, didn't have a hand in it. But, you know, God doesn't blast from heaven. Nope, you're wrong. None of creation makes sense without an intelligent designer, yet God still allows people to continue on in their ignorance, not because he doesn't exist, but because he's not flashy about it, and he he knows that they don't want to believe in him. That's why they don't believe, not because there's not evidence, but because they don't want to. Jesus did countless miracles, yet people still refused him as the Messiah that would come. God doesn't want glory because he's a glory hound. He doesn't need it, or he ceases to be God. God wants glory because he deserves it. It's because he's owed it. Nothing would exist if it weren't for him. We don't deserve glory when we do good because whenever something good happens in us, whenever it's something good or loving or kind or patient, whenever we do something joyful or gentle or faithful or self-controlled, we should know that's not us. That's him. And thus, we don't deserve the credit for it. Abiding in Christ means to abide in his nature. Again, Jesus said that when we abide in him, we can ask for whatever we wish, and it will be granted to us. And it's important that we make this distinction. When we abide in him, we will ask for the things he himself would ask for. We will ask for the things that he places on our hearts. They are things used for him and for his purpose. We're not saved by works, but if we're in him, we as believers will bear fruit. The significant thing about fruit-bearing branches is they are always fruit-bearing branches every single year. They will always bear fruit. The branches that don't bear fruit will never bear fruit. But there is a distinction here that also needs to be made. The amount of fruit that we bear has everything to do with our proximity to Christ. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that apart from him, we can do nothing. Thus, the closer that we are to him, it would make sense the more fruitful that we are able to produce. We're getting more nourishment from the root, from the vine. We produce much fruit when we are close to Christ, and we bring God the most glory. God will take us and shape us, To be more like his son and the more like christ we are the closer we stay to christ the more fruit the holy spirit works around in and through us we shouldn't feel like we need recognition for the good that we do not only because he knows what he's doing in us but because also because we we get something better well what is it that we get that's better than recognition well, come back next week and we'll talk about it. I know that's ugly, but you're going to have to you're going to have to wait. For, for today, or you can just read ahead, you know, figure it out. For today, I'd like for us to focus upon the ways that God is working in our lives. It doesn't always have to be a big miracle for God to be in it. Sometimes God works in little ways. Sometimes God ways, works in ways that are subtle. And if we're not paying attention, we miss them. Sometimes uh, God works in ways that aren't always pleasant, but here's something that's significant: whenever God works, and we know it's Him, these ways God works are always meaningful. We really need to surrender ourselves over to Him so that we we will have, uh, so that He will have His way with us. And I just want to encourage you to ask the Lord today to show you the parts of your life that aren't fruitful. God, what are the areas of my life that I'm straying from Christ and causing myself to be less fruitful? God, what are the ways I need to return to you? What do I need to turn over to you, Lord? Show me what it is that is not of you. What are the ways our church is straying away from the Lord? And thus, are bearing less fruit. We're having less impact on the community in which we live. We need to ask God to show us how we can turn these areas over to Him. And when God shows us, I can promise you this it won't be easy to turn it over. But in order to bring Him the most glory, what He is owed, we must surrender it over to Him. God wants to work, He wants to work around us in us, and through us, not because of who we are, but because of who He is, and because of what He's done. I ask that you to pray these things. Pray for, pray for uh, spiritual sight, so we don't miss the subtle ways that God is working. Pray that once that work is complete in us, we would bear fruit. It's my prayer that we may stick so close to the Jesus that it is impossible. It is impossible to see where He ends and we, where we begin i pray he shows us that we can live without recognition because we have all we need in him so let us do good without need of public acknowledgement let us bear fruit for him and may all the glory be his hey thanks again for listening we pray that god blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.